episode 128 of the Pilot the Pilot podcast takes off now. Jim Higgins, professor of aviation, University of North Dakota. Aviation, what is going on? And welcome back to the Pilot the Pilot podcast. This is going to be a very short introduction. Today is another episode of the State of the Industry with Dr. Jim Higgins from North Dakota. Uh, Jim and I talk about just the state of the industry. This is episode number four of that. And we go into where we are today, what we are dealing with right now. And Jim also goes in and talks about what he predicts and what he thinks and what he thinks could happen in the near future or in the next couple of years. Furloughs are obviously a hot topic and we do talk about furloughs. We talk pretty much anything and everything aviation in this episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Check us out on Instagram at Pilot the Pilot. Make sure to follow and share this with all of your friends so they do not miss out on this as well. But Aviation, like I said, this is a short introduction. I want to get right into today's episode. So any further ado, here's State of the Industry with Dr. Jim Higgins. Jim, what's going on? Welcome back to, uh, what is this, the fourth edition of the State of the Industry? I think it's the fourth. Yeah, yeah fourth. I think that's right. Four too many, right? I know. <laughs> I'm happy to be here. Thanks for the yeah, invite. No problem. I'm glad to have you here. Um, yeah, so I, I don't exactly remember where we left off in the last one. I think we were hypothetically talking about furloughs and the companies and United, I think, was the only one that said, hey, we might be overstaffed by a certain amount. But now where we stand, every airline, it seems like every, let me rephrase it, every major airline. So we have Delta, United and American, kind of the big three, have all sent out warn notices from uh, from what I know at least. Are you getting the same thing there? Uh, absolutely, yeah. You're, you're seeing a lot of that. Companies do have to send those out um, for regulatory reasons, but it doesn't necessarily mean everyone that receives one of those is going to uh, get furloughed or, or get laid off. It just simply is a is a warning. But I think pretty much everyone in the um, industry. Uh, is you know well aware of the situation and probably was expecting some of that. Although it's disheartening when you see it, but the actual furlough notices saying, "Hey, you personally will be furloughed," those will be subject to the collective bargaining agreements. Uh, in some cases, it's a couple weeks. In some cases, it's a month, etc. Yeah, I was I was reading up on United's a little bit, and from what I read, I think United might have some has better furlough language than most of the other carriers. I, from what I read, something they'd have to pay their pilots until January, or I, I didn't. I don't have all the details. I don't know if you have any more on that. Um, I do know that there's there's going to be furlough protections in most of the major uh, airlines. You know, the ultimate furlough protection is a do not furlough clause. I don't know any major airline that has that, but. Uh, as we've discussed before, anytime a furlough occurs under in a union carrier, it has to happen in reverse uh, seniority order, which, of course, is complicated to a company because it creates a training churn, which is very expensive and time consuming. And so that is probably the number one uh, reason why companies uh, don't furlough you know, uh, more frequently. It's something that should be more of a drastic step that's absolutely necessary for more of a longer term reason. But there are other furlough protection provisions, like you mentioned. Um, sometimes they're tied to uh, pay. So, uh, you know, usually travel benefits are included, uh, which can be very important to people. Um, and uh, sometimes too, you'll see like scope, uh, kick, or, uh, scope uh, clauses kick in where there can't be as much or any um, uh, flying done by regionals if the furlough gets to a certain level. 
So there's all kinds of uh, provisions that you'll see added. They're very hard fought provisions typically. And um, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. What is the, so yeah, you mentioned the scope uh, and one of them is regional. They don't want regionals to fly or maybe a certain percentage of, of, uh, of flights have to be on regionals or don't have to be on regionals per the contract. But do, do companies, would they rather, can they save a lot of money by putting everything on a regional? Is that kind of why that's in there to they kind of see that as a job protection in a way? Exactly. So anytime that there's, you know, reduced demand, like we're seeing right now, you know, uh, the major airlines can still make money by outsourcing, which is really what Scope is all about. And they outsource to their regional affiliates and, and groups like that. And um, yeah, it can absolutely allow them to continue to make money. Of course, um, if you're the mainline pilot uh, and something is flying under your banner, your company banner, and you're on the street while regionals are growing or proliferating or flying more, then you can see why that that's a, a very tough pill to swallow as well. So yeah, uh, almost all the major airlines I know of have some type of uh, provision that allows a certain percentage of flying. Sometimes it's an ASM cap. Sometimes it's just a direct percentage cap. Sometimes it's tied to the fleet. So for X number of uh, uh, aircraft uh, at the main line, there can be X number of aircraft at the regional. And so all of those are designed to do exactly that is to try to keep most of the flying uh, done at the main line. That's going to be interesting because it's obviously offer it's it's so much cheaper to operate a, a a small Embraer or a CRJ, but I mean, is it possible for them to operate? So say that scope comes into play. Say uh, they they furlough a certain amount of pilots, and then that triggers that scope where they can't put their their business on, say a regional carrier. Does that mean that they would then have to fly seven thirty sevens on regional routes or small airplanes on regional routes? Right, you're going to see probably both of those both of those uh, situations maybe manifest. You know, what you're, what you're also going to see is as these war notices are sent out, almost every airline union group is in the middle of negotiations. And one of the things that's going to be looked at is, you know, mitigating the furlough and getting that number as low as possible. Uh, truly from both sides, it's in both sides interest to get that number as low as possible, uh, you know, obviously for the union, but even for the, the major airline as well. And so you can bet that some of the topics that will be broached will be in the scope for scope relief if you're looking at it from the main lines. But um, uh, clearly, uh, the main line pilots, you know, that, that's a, like I said, that's, that's really tough. If you're going to send those pilots to the street during a furlough and then there's some kind of scope relief granted, uh, that's a tough, tough thing. And then the question becomes, well, what if we don't furlough as much? Can we get some scope relief? And that's where it really gets dicey and you'll get lots of opinions lots of emotional stuff, uh, things haven't been done well in the past. And so it can be a, uh, well, it's going to be really interesting to see how it plays out. And then ultimately you have the, the potential bankruptcy, which I don't think anyone's talking about, but during a bankruptcy proceeding, it's a little more difficult to do this now, but that's also a possibility to use that to uh, get some provisions into the labor contract. Uh, it's not as simple as I'm making it sound. I mean, it's a, it's a long drawn out fight, but that's another technique that could potentially be used. Yeah, I agree. I mean, just from the outside looking in, so I don't fly for an airline, but it does seem like the airlines do need to cut costs. Obviously, they they are bleeding money. They're 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 running out of money every single month. You see them in the negative pretty much. Uh, so they, I I do feel like though that these announcements are a way to kind of make it spin in their direction that hey, we're trying everything we can. We need to furlough this many people, and uh, and if they have to furlough that exact amount, that probably means that 
they're going to blame it on the union and be like, well, you guys didn't want to give up any concessions. So, you know, I feel like it's kind of like a, they're trying to spin it in a way that they're doing everything they can in order to save these pilots. And then they might play the, put the blame in other places if they do have to furlough that many. Do you know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? I do know what you're saying. And you can bet uh, a lot of money that both sides will uh, do everything they can to control that messaging on who's at fault. But it's a really interesting conundrum because Let's, for instance, if you're at United Airlines and you're a pilot, you know, some of those pilots went through a double furlough experience post 9-11 and then again uh, in the later 2000s. And, um, you know, that's a that's a lot of uh, that's, a, that's a, again, a very um, big price to pay. And then now if you're asked, hey, to avoid a furlough uh, instead of uh, getting a, a minimum guarantee of 72 or 75 hours, what if we guarantee 60 hours a month, which which in effect, because of the flying, you're 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 going to be flying against your men guarantee just because there's not a lot of flying. So you know that, that's a that's a you know drastic pay reduction. And so if you're one of those folks who's going to vote ultimately on whether or not that agreement is accepted, you know you're really going to have to do some um, <laughs> some uh, deep soul searching on what's right, what's right for you, what's right for your family, and what's right for you know future precedent. And so it's, it's tough. And every one of those little scenarios are going to play out individually for each pilot in the industry because there will be generally ratification votes and it's going to be voted on by the pilot group if there is going to be mitigation uh, clauses or scope relief clauses or, you know, something to help out with the furlough. Everyone will get to vote on it. Yeah, and you brought up kind of uh, people that have been furloughed twice already, and even the older generation. So even my my dad flies for American Airlines. He's sixty three. He has two years left, and I've been seeing a lot of, of memes and everything going online about how the older pilots need to retire and they need to to let it go so that they can help save the younger generation. And obviously, I'm in the younger generation, so I agree with that. But kind of having a little bit more knowledge and what my dad has gone through and how he uh, he did avoid furloughs, but he lost pretty much 50% of his pay after September 11th, as did a lot of other people. And he lost his whole pension with US Airways. So he was put in a position where he necessarily right now can't really accept the early out because he still needs to make that money to kind of make up and put his retirement where he needs it to be. So it's a really interesting situation because there there are some that maybe uh, have saved more or have done a better job. I'm not saying my parents didn't do a good job, but uh, there are some that might be better off and can't afford to do that. But I don't know if it's fair to to say that it's bad that they don't take the early out if maybe they need it. Like we don't know, like you said, it's a person by person case and, and what works for them is the best. And it, it's really interesting because there's been a lot of there's been a lot of people that have suffered through this career in the past what 20 years or so there's been furloughs there's been a lot of concessions that we've talked about uh, before and after September 11th and 08 and it's taken a lot of time for those concessions to finally come back up so I don't know if it's fair to cast judgment on uh, an older pilot maybe not taking the out when they when you think that they should I think that that's spot on uh, just as an aside the US air pilots in particular I think really were slapped hard with that whole pension situation. Uh, and uh, I, you know, they've really had it rough. I think this older generation of airline pilots has uh, seen a lot of downturn and lots, they've paid the price many times over. You might get the occasional lucky person that, you know, happen to time everything right. But by and large, most of the um, age 55 plus airline pilots in our industry have experienced uh, times throughout their career where they either didn't have a paycheck or they were in fear of losing that paycheck. So if you want, you know, from an emotional point of view, you can certainly say they paid their dues. Um, from a statistical point of view, most pilots, uh, well, many pilots don't make it to age 65 anyway. Lots will 
leave for medical reasons or other reasons. But then um, finally, I, I tend to be of the um, opinion that, you know, you're not doing anything wrong by, by staying on. And I completely agree with you, especially with the evisceration of uh, defined benefit plans, pensions throughout the industry. You know, what do you expect people to do? I mean, for the most part, Social Security won't kick in anyway for most of them until age 65 unless they want to you know, pay a penalty. And so, you know, you're, you're basically the same with uh, Medicare. So you're, you're basically asking these folks to bow out early. And uh, unless there's a really good early out program, you're asking them, you know, to pay for their own medical and to, you know, shore up the gaps between Social Security and their retirement. It's a very real concern. And again, I, I think everyone has to uh, answer that question for themselves. And um, I don't think it's fair to uh, tease the older people. It's a journey we'll all uh, be, you know, we're all going to go through ourselves at some point yeah. in our career. Yeah, yeah. it's tough. I mean, I, like I said, I'm on the younger generation. I'm not an airline, so I'm, I'm not under necessarily as much pressure with the potential of being furloughed. So I understand if I was in the situation, I'm sure I would be mad and I'd be like, look, you guys have had this career for this long. You need to give it up. Like, make sure I can save my job. But it's it's really hard to take yourself out of position and kind of see the big picture of what everyone's been through and kind of cast uh, cast your judgment accordingly. But uh, yeah, it's like we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know who's going to take it. I know Delta came out and said they had 2,500 pilots, I think, take the early out. So that should help. I think they also said that just that those early outs will not fully help furlough mitigation. And again, that could also be the company being like, all right, we need to continue and try to get more money free. We need more concessions. And it could be kind of a game with the union, but uh, they have said that that's not going to mitigate furlough. So it, truly time will tell. I mean, this is such a fluid process. Every single conversation that we had, I think we started and we we're like, well, I don't necessarily see furloughs. And then we could kind of saw how the game was changing and it was kind of really moving toward that part. And uh, it seems the timeline for recovery might be moving farther back. Well, you know, on that timeline for recovery, it's, it, it, you know, it does seem to be a moving target. Things change. You know, we are in the midst, uh, obviously, of an uptick in the number of cases of coronavirus in the U.S. Uh, it's catching a lot of news uh, coverage, which, of course, uh, scares people. And rightly so. It's a, you know, a dangerous disease. And so we have to uh, we have to realize that's the reality of it. You know, when we last spoke, I think it was a couple months ago, uh, one of the things, you know, I brought up is, is if we could get to 50 percent of our 2019 levels, you know, by the end of the year, in terms of passengers, that that would go a long way towards uh, keeping our head above water in terms of survivability. And then, you know, I put the uh, recovery, you know, back to the 2019 passenger levels about two to three years after that. But, you know, um, and some people now are saying it's going to be longer. Uh, United came out, of course, uh, with to their shareholders and said they see us stagnating at the 50% level until a vaccine, you know, comes into play. Uh, and that may be, that may be accurate. Uh, but what I will say is, uh, if you look at the TSA uh, screening data, it has jumped up a little faster than I think most of us thought it would, uh, at least myself anyway. And, you know, uh, it's, you know, uh, just in the last week, you know, we've had a couple times over uh, 700,000 passengers in the weeks before that. So if we can get to that 1.1 to 1.3 million passengers by the end of the year. That's going to be really, really helpful. Uh, but keep in mind, most of those passengers are what we would classify as leisure travelers. And for you know the frontiers and the Allegiance, uh, the Southwest, Alaska, that, that's that's fine. They can make uh, good money on leisure travelers. Unfortunately, for the Delta American United Group, 
it's a little more difficult because they rely more on their business travelers to bring profitability. And so um, I think that long term, you're going to see um, the winning business plans based on the current circumstance and the future circumstances. I think you're going to see market share increase at a lot of those um, uh, low cost carriers that can make money on anybody. So, yeah, I, I still think you're looking at 50% by the end of the year and uh, you're still looking at two to three years um, before the passenger loads return. But that does not mean it's going to take two to three years to return a profitability because we can make money with less passengers for a variety of reasons. And so I think you can see, pro- I honestly believe you can see profitability uh, in 2021, whether it's the third quarter, fourth quarter. I really do see that returning by then. Unless, you know, we have a Spanish flu type second wave that is more deadly than the first, you know, something like that. Which yeah. we have no idea what's happening. We're playing this day by day, hour by hour. Uh, another thing that that could hurt that hurts a uh, Delta American United more than a Southwest a JetBlue, uh, whatever low cost carrier you want to insert there, is the fact that they rely so much. Uh, I mean, United especially relies so much on their big heavy international travel. I think they're what did they have? They had a huge percentage more than any one of them going over to the Asia Pacific. So they, who knows how long that's going to go? Like domestic might pick up. But it's still going to be, might even be three, five years before we start going full on on the scale that they were going over to, to Asia. Yeah, I, it's it's definitely, uh, you're exactly right. The large carriers, uh, major airlines, legacy carriers, absolutely rely a lot on international flying. And, you know, those were hard uh, one routes that they all fly through bilateral agreements and other types of trade agreements. You know, so it's tough for for them to see those uh, not be present right now. I do think that once we get some closure on this virus, whenever that's going to be, whether it's through a vaccine or a therapeutic or, you know, whatever, um, I do think once that fear is removed, you will see uh, a a pretty quick return uh, from the terms of consumers uh, and even some business flying. Of course, we are going to have to deal with any economic downturns, which can have a pretty dramatic effect uh, on business travel. And that, that's what could push us out to the two to three year mark. But I, I do think this is a little bit different than others because once we, once we solve the virus, uh, the confidence problem should go away and it just now becomes an economics problem, which we know generally will heal over time. Yeah. And uh, I hate to keep saying all the problems that they have, but another issue is going to be, you, you mentioned they rely on business travel, is right now businesses are taking advantage of, of corporate aviation. They're taking advantage of private aviation. They can see that they can control a lot more. Granted, the price might be more, but they can see that they, they are, the control factor is so much a bit more in their favor. They have less people on the airplane. They have less people of risk of infection. They know more about how things are clean. They have more ability into to seeing how things go and go their way. Uh, we all have short memories. Humans have short memories. It's going to, I mean, in like five years when this all said and done, we might be going back to not wearing masks, shaking hands, doing everything you did before. It's just going to be interesting to see how long they can weigh that extra price versus the uh, the control that they have versus, say, a, a, a private company or flying on Delta or American United again. Yeah, the uh, the corporate area clearly could really make a big step into market share. You know, generally speaking, and you probably know more about this than I do, Justin, but the economics of corporate travel is for an individual, even at the you know entry level business uh, travel, you know, you, you generally have to have a net worth of around 20 million, which doesn't apply to most Americans. But if you can ever get that number down even lower, uh, for all the reasons you state, 
but but the biggest reason is not just safety. The biggest reason is is you know the waste of time that comes with uh, airline travel. And I mean, I know this is the age old argument uh, that companies have to weigh when they go with uh, corporate versus uh, airline. You know, is the amount of time that's wasted. Uh, during you know public transit, I mean that's just that's just that's just the big thing. And you look at the studies; it really depends on how much you value your employees' time. And so, I really think that uh, there's a long-term opportunity for corporate aviation to permeate further. And if they could ever get that unit price down, which by the way will go down with more corporate flying, I just you know if you could ever get that net worth number down into the five to three million range, you know when we saw the Eclipse jets years ago and some of the others. That was our big hope that you would see that lower. Uh, but, you know, we're not quite there yet, obviously. But if you could ever get down to that level where more people uh, could use that, then you would just see an explosion. Uh, you know, like we saw some of the early predictions in 2010, 2012. You just see a big explosion of that personal air travel and business travel. But big opportunity for cor- the corporate world. No it, doubt. it is a really big opportunity. And it's something that's going to be interesting. Can they get the price down? Do people want to still fly as cheap as possible and maybe fly a, a cheaper, less known company? Or will they kind of still, will they play, pay the premium to fly uh, the bigger carriers that are in the private world as well? Or maybe they'll buy their own plane. I mean, uh, who knows how they're going to view that and, and what's going to happen. Once again, that's going to be time is going to tell us what's going to happen there. Um, I want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, more of the warn notices. I don't know if everyone really understands what a warn notice is. So would you mind explaining a little bit what exactly a warn notice is? Sure, absolutely. So um, uh, a warn notice is a re- by law, it's required under federal legislation. I don't have the act in front of me, but it's, it's an act uh, that was passed that basically says you have to have 60 days notice if the company intends to furlough you. And there's other... There's other uh, uh, rules with it, like you have to have so many employees and certain percentages and whatnot. And it just basically is a notice from the company saying that, and this is important, they might be uh, letting you go for economic conditions or, or something else. Um, just because you receive a warn notice does not does not necessarily mean that you will ultimately get furloughed or laid off. In the case of a pilot, they're going to have to wait. They should go and review their contract and see how many days notice they have to have before a furlough. Um, and then that's when that's when you'll know when you get the notice saying, hey, you will be furloughed on this date. Here's, you know, you'll get your COBRA coverage extended or by contract. We have to provide medical and travel, and whatever it is. That's how you'll know. But but the idea was behind the war notices that nobody would be caught, you know, off guard. It, it was the idea behind it. Uh, certainly, if you're one of the employees that received a war notice, um, you know, it's not something you ever want to get in the mail. Right. You should open up. But uh, again, it does not necessarily mean that you're uh, not going to have employment October 1st. It just means that, you know, you may be on that list and that may happen. Yeah, for sure. Um, and then going into con- and then, uh, kind of furthering this conversation to- toward furloughs and concessions. So concessions are a very dangerous game for someone to play. Like obviously the union and the company want to come up with some kind of deal that can let them keep everyone on board. But it comes to a price because concessions take a while to get back. I mean, talk about pre 2001 and we were just getting back to those pay grades in 2020, you know, it's uh, it took them 20 years to pretty much get everything back that they gave up. So they're not going to get that stuff back right away. Uh, you have looked at contracts before. What are your thoughts on concessions? How long does it take? How long does it typically take to get uh, those concessions back to where they are before? Uh, do they, do they usually work in the long run? What do you think about them? 
Well, here's the thing. In some cases, concessions are never reachieved. I mean, you can, I hate to bring it up, but you can ask your father about his pension. You know, um, when, when some of those things go away, they're so unbelievably expensive to refinance later on. I mean, in the case of a, of a pension program under U.S. law right now, ERISA, which is the retirement law, in order to stand up a pension plan from scratch, which is what would have to be happening, it would have to be fully funded from day one. I mean, you're, you're talking billions of dollars probably for any major airline pilot group. So, so there's an example of once it's gone, it's, it's probably never coming back. Now, there might be other things like we're seeing, you know, profit sharing uh, and things like that, that, you know, are, you know, are, are designed maybe to help mitigate some of that or some people use it for that reason. But uh, some of those things are gone forever. So you're absolutely right uh, in terms of pay, work rules. Uh, those things were pretty hard fought over generations of pilots to, to get to where you're at. So that has to be very carefully weighed. And I do believe the pilots are, are right to be skeptical about this. You know, uh, there's, we're, we're operating in the realm of uncertainty with how long this is going to last. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Pay cuts, scope relief, men guarantee relief, work rule relief, or retirement relief, all of that can be really, really difficult to, uh, you know, get back. Um, I would encourage uh, unions, and they're going to they're gonna be all over this, to use snapback provisions so that um, at least um, it's a little more palatable. So if there is short-term relief, the snapback clause would say at some point, uh, and that can be really hard to prove, by the way, but at some point when there's a milestone or a benchmark hit, the uh, group snaps back to the original provisions that they had they had secured. So, so uh, those are some of the things you're going to hear talked about and discussed and negotiated. My guess is, if I'm forecasting this, you're going to see some some concessions, but you're probably not going to see the kind of concessions that were given post 9/11. But you probably will see some uh, concessions. The easiest concessions or easiest um, uh, solutions, maybe rather than concessions, are the early out programs that have been negotiated with the with the unions. You know, that's that's pretty much, uh, you know, a win win uh, for the company and the union and hopefully for the individual employee that takes one of those programs. But um, after that's when you start experiencing pain points. Yeah. And like we talked about, you, you, like you said, you're not necessarily guaranteed to get that back. Or if you do give it back in the future, when you're going back into as a section six or whatever it is where you negotiate, you have to give something up to get that back. So once you give it up, you're going to have to give something else up in order to get that back. So it's a, it's not a win-win. I mean, it's a win for the company for sure. And they have proven in the past that it's not always a good thing. And I mean, where do you draw the line? I don't want to be the person in the union that draws the line and writes off, say, all right, if we make this concession, we can save 500 extra pilots. And then what do you say to the other 1,200 or 1,700 pilots that you got to get rid of just because you gave up uh, your 401k is now 10% instead of 16%. You know, it's a it's a really tough call and one that I do not want to be in charge of. Right. Yeah. And, you know, no matter what happens, we know there's going to be uh, winners and losers, right? You know, whoever gets furloughed is going to end up on the losing end of this. And, um, you know, I, I say winners, there's probably not going to be a lot of winners in this, but but maybe the winner would be if the if the airline is able to return to viability uh, quicker. But uh, like I said, skepticism in these cases is very healthy, and I don't blame the line pilots uh, for having that type of uh, skepticism. You know, unfortunately, you know it feels like Lucy with the football. We you know from an employee point of view, you know Charlie Brown, and you know every time we get ready to kick it, is the ball going to be pulled away from us at the last second? You know, and when are we going to learn? 
you know, uh, because the air, I'm quite frankly, the airline management teams post 9-11 behaved horribly. You know, they received lots of airline stabilization bailout money and then promptly laid off lots of people, promptly paid out uh, bonuses to their managements. I mean, it was everything that you would uh, write about in terms of, you know, ethics uh, of how not to handle things. And this is my opinion. But but so now so we've seen that. Now, the current airline management teams seem to, in my opinion, seem to be uh, better, a, a better character of people. By and large, there might be some exceptions to that. So I'm hoping that, you know, they do the right thing by both their employees and their shareholders. And, you know, whatever provisions are ultimately negotiated, that they don't make it a mountain recline to get some of those provisions back later on when the companies are back healthy again. Agreed. And what do you know what would save the company the most money right now? Because uh, obviously they need money now. They don't need money in the future. They need money for the next year, two years. What What's the most expensive part of the contract? Is it the actual pay? Is it a 401k contributions? Is it uh, putting it back in the day when they had pensions? Is it putting into the pensions? What exactly would save them the most money in a contract? What would they most likely be giving up? It's going to vary a little bit based on work rules, but by and large, it's going to be direct salary payments because the salary payments trigger so many other things like 401k contributions, et cetera. Uh, but um, the easiest, quickest way probably to get some uh, salary relief is not necessarily negotiating a pay cut, which could be very hard to you know, I mean, that could be really tough on everyone. Uh, what most of them are looking at doing right now is reducing their minimum monthly guarantees because uh, it's kind of an interesting problem right now. There's just not a lot of flying, right? So there's a lot, there's a big surplus of pilots, but so so almost all of them are going to bump up against their minimum pay guarantee. And no matter what they do for you that month, if you're management, you have to pay them that minimum amount. You know, even if someone flies 30 hours, you're going to pay them 75 hours of pay. That's 45 hours of you know, non-productive pay that you just have to basically stroke a check for. So if that was lowered to even, you know, 70 or 65, some cases 60, you know, that would be the quickest way to save money in the short term. But like I said, you know, the 75 hour men guarantee, I mean, you know, that's, that's been a hard fought provision, something that's been there forever. So pilots have to be very, very careful giving that up as well. But um, that's probably the quickest way to save, to save money. Yeah, there, there's no way a pilot, the pilots would be getting that back if they gave that up. Because like you said, they worked for that for so long and the company's going to hold on to this moment for so long. Be like, well, now your men guarantees 50 hours and there's nothing we will ever do to give that back. We'll pay you a higher, a higher uh, hourly rate, but it has proven that you sitting at home sometimes and, and these active gods, that it just doesn't work out. So this is going to be the minimum rate no matter what. I mean, I, I think that that's a, that's a possibility. I mean, you'd have to really write in some snapback provisions that were uh, bulletproof, if there is such a thing. You know, we learned in the 90s, uh, some contracts I was part of, when you write a snapback provision, when a company returns to profitability, uh, that's tip, that was the prototypical snapback. So we'll give you this concession, but when you return to profitability, we get the old uh, contract uh, uh, clauses back. Uh, it's called a snapback. Well, all of a sudden, the companies weren't that profitable for a very long time, as you can imagine, through some, you know, pretty uh, uh, interesting bookkeeping techniques. And so, you really, you know, we've learned over the years, uh, you know, how to write these things. And so you'd have to do things like, you know, amount of flying, you know, some kind of uh, activity cap, something. But uh, you'd get a snapback. That'd be about the only way you could maybe, maybe enter into this area. Definitely. And uh, we seem to be be kind of looking at a time frame of what a lot of people are saying two to three years. And I know Doug Parker 
has very publicly said that he doesn't want to furlough if he just expects to bring the pilots back next July. Um, as things progress in the fall, I mean, I guess this is the next couple of months to really decide, obviously, if, if we can get some kind of control over it, if we have any hope for a vaccine, for therapy. But it really, like we mentioned earlier on this podcast, it doesn't make sense to furlough someone or a large group of people, especially if you're going to have uh, them back in July, because then you're going to have training costs out the wazoo and it's just going to cause even more problems down the road. So uh, they truly have to be looking at probably about a two-year recovery or their expectations for that, for this to be, uh, say, a win for the company or a profitability win. Uh, absolutely. Of course, it depends on how many fleet types the company has. And, you know, they've they've run through the simulations already. They know if they furlough, you know, X number of pilots, how much extra training they're going to have to do, which is very expensive because, again, you're paying people. They're not revenue service for the company, so they're, they're in essence, an expense. And, you know, and then if all of a sudden you turn around and bring people back, it uh, absolutely wreaks havoc on the bottom line. So that's the key to it. You know, one other thing just to add, <laughs> excuse me, on how to maybe end this, you know, we've talked about the vaccines, therapeutics. You know, an uh, interesting article that just came out um, the other day on testing. You know, um, there's a new antigen test that's coming out that's really cheap and it's instantaneous. Now, it's nowhere near as accurate as the gold standard test you get if you've ever gotten a COVID test. I've, I've gotten it a couple times uh, over the last uh, uh, month and a half, if you've ever had one. But that, that's the gold standard where they look at the actual RNA signature of the virus. But there are new antigen tests that um, aren't as sensitive. But as we learn more about the virus, uh, it turns out that when you're uh, able to infect other people, that these tests might be able to detect when you have that level in there. And so that might be something that maybe since they're so inexpensive and can, uh, you know, that might be something that maybe we could do for airline passengers to give everyone, uh, you know, some solace in the fact that, hey, everyone's been tested on this plane, right? That type of thing. I mean, we already do the temperatures, we do the masks, but so, so there, there might be a lot of different paths out of this, which could accelerate that two to three year timeline. But um, I feel bad for United American and Delta because they really have to, they really have to bet their companies right now. They have to bet their companies on when uh, passenger travel is going to return and when people are going to be willing to pay full fare. And if they're wrong on that, it could really cost them dearly. If, if, they're, if, if passengers return very quickly and they don't have the uh, personnel and equipment in place, their competitors like Southwest and others are just going to just dominate and take massive amounts of market share. But on the other hand, if they keep, if they keep themselves fat, uh, then of course they're going to lose a lot more money in the short term and all for not. And you know, that's a problem too. So, so I do feel really bad with those types of legacy business plans on what to do. It goes to exactly what you're saying, Justin, it all depends on when passengers return and what they're willing to pay. And that's just something that, even now, uh, it's still, uh, you know, educated guest territory. Yeah. And what we don't know is, so say a vaccine comes out tomorrow, how quickly can we vaccinate every single person in the United States, every single person in the world? How quickly is that demand? Is it going to be a snapback? Is it going to, like we are talking about earlier, is it going to come back immediately? Are we going to see the next day, are we going to see people buying tickets? And if that's so, you just furlough 2,500 pilots, what are you going to do? You can't bring them all back. But then again, if that's not the case, if we, the vaccine is kind of slowly integrated and you have a card, you got to prove that you had it, and it's more of a uh, controlled uh, bring back of aviation and travel, 
uh, is it worth it? It's just, yeah. I mean, people getting paid the big bucks right now (laughs) to make these decisions and like, it's a game. They don't know what the right answer is or it's kind of shaking that magic eight ball right now. Being like, should I furlough? Should we keep them? What should we do? And you kind of just be like, Oh, that's the second time I got that. Maybe we'll do this. Right. Right. And it's all um, predicated by the fact that, you know, every day these airlines are burning through cash and, you know, these CEOs and management teams are very, uh, uh, you know, very aware of that. And so um, when, you know, the house is burning, uh, you know, but you think it might burn out and things will be fine. What do you do? Do you, do you still keep everyone in there or do you abandon the entire house? And, you know, I mean, it's, it's a very difficult, um, very difficult equation and uh, no one knows the answer. So, you know, the airlines that have the best business plan for this right now are the ones we talked about earlier they're still going to hurt and they're still hurting, but long-term you can, I think you're really going to see some increase in market share there. That'd be my opinion anyway. Well, yeah, I mean, they, they don't have that international piece that's been hurting so much and what made the bigger companies so profitable. So they, they aren't as extended as we would say. And so say like a Southwest, a JetBlue or a Legion Frontier, like those, they should be able to bounce back and they should, I mean, they're all going to hopefully bounce back, but they should be in a better position than say the big three right now, which is really interesting going forward. Obviously this is going to be fresh in our minds. Our airlines going to change is, is United never going to be what United was in the Pacific is American not going to want to do as much international travel. Are they going to be trying to, is it going to be more competitive with the Southwest domestically and kind of focus on that? So it's going to change the game plan and the strategies of how to make money, how to future proof your airline, because what was future proof in the past is not future proof anymore. If that makes sense. Like we have come up with the, the wildest thing that we never thought could ever happen and in 10 years, we might be sitting here talking about another wild thing that we never thought could happen. So you really, really have to try to find a way to protect yourself because this has happened and we need to figure out how to keep this from happening in the future and really try to future-proof airlines. Uh, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I, I do think that uh, the big financial crises that the airlines have faced in the past, you know, outside of 9-11, have generally been uh, relegated to passenger demand and fuel. And the way the airlines learned how to handle that was through those um, uh, ancillary income or ancillary fees that we've discussed a few times. And uh, so they, they were able to find a way to navigate through those types of obstacles. Right now, they have not found a way to yet fully uh, operate through the pandemic times. I'm sure they will. I do think one of the longer term things that we'll see, especially amongst the legacy carriers, is you will see them start charging more. And I think this is just a byproduct of what's going to happen. It may not start today or tomorrow, but long term, you'll see them do more ancillary uh, fee collection to more mimic the business models of, uh, you know, the frontiers and the allegiance, et cetera, because uh, that is another way to insulate yourself from downturns. uh, And it also is a way to capture income from leisure travelers who, um, you know, are not as sensitive to things like a pandemic uh, just by their consumer behavior. So, yeah, you're going to see you're going to see lots of uh, changes in those regards. Uh, going forward, you know, I think. Yeah. And this is just kind of a, an, an interesting thought. Do you think that this could help speed up the process of uh, going single pilot just because they could see how much money they could save in the future? They could see that there's one less salary that they're going to have in 10, 15 years. Or do you think they're not really worried about that right now? Uh, well, I think uh, there are some airlines that clearly have an interest in, you know, reduced crew uh, cockpits. Uh, the one that comes to mind the most is, you know, FedEx and some of the cargo haulers. Um, uh, you know, make no doubt about it. When the uh, 
what was it? The 797, I think Boeing announced at the Paris Air Show last year. You know, one of the press releases that came out, maybe we talked about this just, I'm not sure, but there was a press release that came out along with that that basically said there was going to be um, a single pilot option or what we call a remote crew monitoring where where maybe you still have the full crew up there, but one sits at the flight deck while the other's resting. And then there's somebody that's remotely positioned that's playing the role of pilot monitoring. Um, and so Boeing had mentioned that they were going to go down that path, but it caused a big uproar. And within about three to four days, another press release was put out by Boeing saying, oh, no, no, we don't intend to do that. You know, we're not sure where that came from. But I think, my, you know, again, I'm not a conspiracy guy, but I, I absolutely can tell you that that is one of the processes that's being looked at long term. That being said, uh, the regulatory work that would have to be done with the FAA, uh, especially after the Max uh, 737 Max fiasco and some of the other um, situations, I, you know, you're you're at minimum a decade away, not because of the technology, but you're at minimum a decade away for political and for regulatory reasons before people feel safe, and and a lot longer for passenger aircraft. Yeah, no, for sure. And like you've seen, they've seen how they hold on to airplanes for for 30 years or so, and they're not going to want to buy brand new $180 million airplanes or whatever the price would be to just to, to be able to knock off some salary. So it's definitely a way off. Um, it, it's a strategy, though. It's uh, how do we save money? That's what they're thinking. That's all they're thinking about right now, saving money. And I'm sure maybe on page two, it's uh, how do we speed up the single pilot process? How do we get rid of that salary? So it's going to be to me, interesting to think about. It's going to be an interesting game to play. Um, I know that we are at 40 minutes or so, but I got a couple more things I want to bring up. Uh, JetBlue and American, what does this co-chair, this agreement, kind of what really does this do? When I look at it, it just looks like it gives American more access to the Northeast and they don't actually have to do the flying. Is that kind of all it is? Is there is there more of like a hidden agenda behind it? Um. Well, of course, uh from a conspiracy point of view, uh, anytime two companies uh, look at merging, one of the first things they'll do is they'll sign a co-chair agreement. So that uh, that obviously starts the speculation process for outside observers and employees and investors saying, "Ah, look at this! They they're going through this more enhanced co-chair." That's not that certainly is general. You know, statistically, that's usually not the case. But that is that is almost always a precursor step to that process. But anytime you enter into a co-chair agreement, it's exactly what you're saying, Justin. The idea is is to uh, you know increase your uh, network and the touch points in your network without greatly increasing your costs. So you're still able to collect revenue that you would have never been able to do without expending great resources and expense. And so co-chairs you know make a perfect uh, uh, perfect complement to that. And of course, we see that with the international alliances as well. You know, all of those touch points. You know, and, and the idea is from the passenger point of view, it's great. You just pay for one ticket. You know, everything's taken care of. You may end up flying on different carriers, but, you know, your transfer's taken care of. Your bags are taken care of. You don't have to worry about all those logistical details. So it, that, that's right now I would put it in that category that it's just a way to, um, you know, look at a quick, cheap way of uh, casting a wider net on a network. And I know that's probably the company line from, American as well and JetBlue. Uh, but there is a possibility that it's the beginning of a relationship uh, where they start looking at each other. It's not, you're not going to be able to hide that very well. Uh, you know, what will happen is, is you'll start seeing, uh, you know, more meetings, more marketing agreements, and then someone will spill the beans from one of the labor unions uh, that this is going on as well. So 
Um, but it would not be a surprise. I mean, one of the reasons why I think Alpha was successful at JetBlue and their and their efforts was because of the uh, threat or whatever word you want to use to it that there was going to be a future merger and JetBlue would have been a um, maybe a you know a target for that. And so that's one of the reasons why they um, you know went to the labor union. So so it's you know always at play and always a possibility. Well, it's interesting because you would, I, when I saw that I was kind of thinking like why would JetBlue do this? Why would they want to help American when they might be in a better position to to kind of do this on their own, to to come out of this better in the future, you know, wait a year or two, see where we're at. Because uh, American seems to be, the, the big three seem to be on a, on a worse trajectory than maybe JetBlue Southwest. So I was just confused as why they would be willing to help out. I, I mean, I don't know if they, they think uh, we're all in this together. We all got to help each other. It's just it's seeming a little confusing to me. Well, it's not. It's not that. It's not. We're all in this together. I don't think. I think the the, the big JetBlue is going to have to see upside for themselves as well, so they would get access to to uh, America's network. Now, even though international flying is at a uh, low, right, uh, almost non-existent, uh, certainly it's not going to be that way forever. JetBlue knows that. They have to plan for a long period of time. One of the knocks again, you know, we talk about how the business plans of the, some of the lower cost carriers are going to uh, really help them increase domestic market share. One of the big drawbacks of those business plans is the lack of uh, transoceanic travel in markets, you know, in Europe and in Asia, right? Because Airbuses and 737s, you know, don't don't typically, are, they're not typically able to do that on a regular basis. And so um, then the knock becomes, how do those companies ultimately grow beyond their domestic market shares? And the answer is they are going to have great difficulty to do that. The only other thing that could happen is a merger or some kind of a, a, a co-chair agreement with a company that does international flying. And that may be one of the things JetBlue is looking at long term is, you know, as a way to grow past some of their inherent limitations of a domestic model. I mean, I know they go to South America and I know they go to Canada, but I'm talking Asia and uh, Europe and Africa. And it's going to be tough to hit, you know, right now with their current business models. Yeah. Uh, from where you look at it right now, do you see a possibility of uh, uh, maybe a surprise merger or even say uh, that maybe one or two carriers aren't going to make it out of this. Do you think that's a strong possibility or do you think that's still kind of uh, uh, you don't really believe that that is a possibility? Uh, on the regional side, I definitely see uh, consolidations and, uh, you know, uh, and unfortunately I still think that there could very well be some airline deaths on the regional side. Uh, on the major airline side, my personal belief right now is it's, a, it's still a little more unlikely than likely that there be any kind of mergers Right now, the, the airlines are still just trying to compete for their life, uh, especially in the case of the legacy carriers. They're just they're still trying to figure out when the passengers are going to return, when the revenue is going to return. It would be a major distraction and a major gamble right now to uh, go forward with a with a merger plan. However, however, the other side of that, and we discussed this once before, is if you are an American Airlines, for instance, and you are worried about the fact that the low-cost carriers are going to increase their domestic market share because their business plan is going to be easier to execute going forward than what you have. One way to mitigate that is to purchase or merge with, um, you know, as part of the company that already has that built in. For instance, the American JetBlue, that would be an example of that. Yeah, I mean, definitely true. It's so crazy that this is this is truly something that the the industry has never seen. Usually, as we talked about earlier, 
uh, aviation, it's a finan- It's more of a financial thing, which it will be a financial thing, but it's it's also this virus. I mean, when we talked about the the warn and furloughs and training, another thing we never talked about in training is what happens if you get a, a, a huge spread of the virus in the training center, then you can't train your pilots anymore. That's going to set your airline back even farther. Um, what if people can't get with train? I mean, just the, the training cost and the issues with training are going to be huge. Uh, and we also have the possibility, the last thing we'll bring up is, do you see the possibility of another bailout for the airlines? Uh, so, you know, that's been, that's been postulated and there's been an effort lately and some of the airlines are, are getting behind it as well. But the labor unions are really pushing hard for an extension of the CARES Act. Um, you know, it's tough, tough to say how that'll go. Uh, my guess is, is it's less likely that Congress is going to uh, do that. If they did that, it would be, in my opinion, probably more on the loan side rather than the grant side. And a lot of airlines would be um, less uh, willing to participate in that. Uh, but it's a possibility. And I certainly think it's worth the efforts of everyone to try to get that extended uh, in the industry because it worked out, uh, quite frankly, pretty well the first time. And um, <clears throat> the theory is sound. I mean, the airlines are a complete victim here. Uh, absolutely a victim. I mean, they didn't ask for the virus. Nobody, nobody. I mean, the real victims are the people that died. But from a business point of view, uh, the airlines are absolutely a victim here, along with hotels and cruise ships, any of those types of uh, uh, products that are offered to the public. And so, uh, you know, you can completely understand the airline industry is so vital to our uh, GDP and our overall national economy that you want to protect that. You want to make sure that this stays viable. So, you know, the theory is sound, but it's going to be tough to find the political will, in my, my opinion, to to, um, to see that continue. But, you know, I think it's worth a shot for sure. Yeah. And another thing a lot of people aren't talking about, we're talking about the airlines, we're talking about pilots, uh, we're talking about Boeing, we're talking about the big companies. What we're not talking about is the kind of third-party manufacturers that these big companies really count on and the effect that that's going to have when they go out of business, when they're not receiving necessarily all the money. Maybe they should have gotten in the CARES Act or maybe they didn't spend it right, but they have to declare bankruptcy. They go out of business. Now it leaves this airline to, to count on another company, try to find another company, or will there be another company? Is that going to be something they'll do in-house? So it's a, there's a lot of moving parts in this. We don't know en- enough still. Here we are, what, six months in? We still don't know enough of how this is going to end up. No, I, I agree. And, you know, there's going to be ripple effects everywhere, you know, whether it's a, a equipment a vendor, caterer, uh, you know, anyone that provides a, a subsidiary business to the airlines, you know, there's going to be probably uh, bankruptcies and liquidations there. Uh, you know, the free market person in me will tell you over time, you know, others will come in and fill that gap. But it's a very real, uh, you know, very real concern. Yeah. All right. Uh, that's pretty much all I wanted to ask. One last thing. What prediction right now? I kind of always ask your prediction, your thoughts. Uh, what are you seeing in uh, a year, two years, uh, a recovery, maybe not back to 2019, but back to where furloughs aren't necessarily an issue or, or even what do we need to see? What do we need to see from a, a virus point of view? Less cases, vaccine, what kind of will bring back us, bring back the avi- aviation industry to, to where it was or what it could be? Uh, so my, you know, my spur of the moment uh, spot forecast, I have not done heavy analysis in this area, but Still remains the same as when we talked um, back in, in May. Um, I, I do believe we return to at least um, 50% uh, boardings uh, that we had in 2019 by the end of this year. So that would be somewhere between 1.1 and 1.3 million passengers per day in the U.S. 
And I think that that helps quite a bit. Um, uh, I think that if we get to that point, that there, there's there's going to likely be some furloughs in October. I think that that's pretty evident. Uh, but if we get to that 50% point by the end of the year, that should, if things hold together, that should, uh, you know, not uh, not cause any more furloughs. That should prevent any more furloughs. Uh, as far as returning to the 2019 passenger levels, I, I still think it's in the, the two to three year range I talked last time. I know that that forecast has been pushed out quite a bit by others. But in my opinion, it's still in that two to three. And I do think profitability returns before that because of ancillary fees, revenue management, and other tools that the airlines are able to use to extract, you know, a specific amount of money from their passengers. I think that that, that returns. And, and by the way, one thing we didn't get a chance to talk too much, there is a segment of the industry besides corporate that's doing quite well. And that, you know, that's still freight. Freight is still going gangbusters. You know, uh, those, they're not parking any aircraft. I'll tell you that much. And, um, you know, we'll see, we'll see if that's a long-term, uh, uh, setup, but that's, you know, so we're talking specifically about the passenger carriers. Anyway, that's my prediction, uh, for where it will be the vaccine. If it's deployable quickly would absolutely be a game changer. Obviously. Um, I think if we're able to get therapeutics and if we're able to get really quick instant testing, uh, that's useful that airlines can use in the boarding areas. Um, I think that would also be another way to really help, uh, catalyze this process back to normalcy. Yeah. And I, I lied again. I kind of have one more thought, one more question. Um, so say pilots get furloughed. Uh, what's the job market for them? What, uh, what can they do aviation wise? Like, I mean, corporate is doing okay. Corporate's not really hiring though. They're kind of still in this weird waiting balance of they need their businesses. They need people to have places to go and they still a little bit of fear. So I feel like corporate's still a couple months away from really hiring a lot or getting back to where they were before. Uh, they might have sold more, but they still aren't flying as much as what they were before. Uh, if cargo, obviously, but it, does cargo, do they have more planes? Do they need more pilots? Uh, is there a job market for a furloughed pilot, say, today? Uh, it's going to be tough, especially after October 1st. It's going to be even tougher. Um, but yes, there are opportunities. Uh, the corporate world, as you know, is going to be difficult for a couple of reasons for a furloughed 121 Pilot. Uh, the first is, is you know, is there going to be you know opportunities and jobs? But the second is going to be, you know, a lot of uh, hiring managers in the corporate world have seen this uh, play out before. And uh, and it, wrong or right, I understand where they're coming from. If you hire a 121 person, the chances that they're going to stay with you, uh, you know, when they get recalled to their airline, and who knows, that could be six months, that could be a year. You know, those chances um, are high that they're gonna that they're gonna leave. And so um, it's kind of uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, it's going to be difficult, I think, for some pilots to transition to the corporate world if they're wanting to go back to their airline, which everyone understands both sides of that issue. Um, in terms of uh, getting hired at the cargo carriers, the um, cargo carriers that are flying right now for Amazon for the prime, under the Prime Air concept, uh, they are all hiring. They're all growing. Um uh, in some cases, they have some uh, decent provisions in their contracts, but their contracts, by and large, are, are not congruent with what you would find, say, at the UPS or the FedEx level. Uh, they will be, I'm sure, someday, uh, you know, with a concentrated effort. But those would also represent some opportunities. I know some of the regional pilots that have uh, lost their jobs either through liquidations or whatnot, a lot of them are finding their way to those carriers. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, that might be an opportunity as well. Uh, but uh, it could be tough. After October 1st, I think there's going to be a lot of people that will be looking for some jobs with a limited amount. 
And so that could be tough. We're also seeing some international uh, expat pilots uh, being laid off as well. And so they're going to come back into the pool as well. And so it could be kind of difficult for, for a little while. Definitely. Well, Jim, I appreciate your time. Those are all the questions I have for you. Uh, I know we'll have another one of these because we are not out of the woods by, by any stretch of things. So uh, we'll have you back on uh, hopefully soon and uh, we'll have another chat and hopefully it's uh, talking about how we were able to mitigate furloughs and kind of navigate around that. But uh, time will tell. Like we said, I wish we had better news for everyone. Uh, hang in there. Keep your head up. We're going to get through this eventually. I know that that's kind of just like not what you want to hear, but eventually we'll be back to, to where we were and we'll be loving our life and loving our jobs again. But Jim, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate everything you've done and uh, just can't wait to have you back on and talk to you more. Uh, happy to come on. Thanks for inviting me. And I agree with the very last part of your message there. Uh, it's still a great career. It will be a great career. We absolutely uh, will get back uh, bigger and better. Question is when, but uh, and then, oh, if you're looking at this over a 30 to 35 year period, if you're a new person, uh, absolutely uh, great times ahead as well. There'll be also downturns ahead as well, but uh, hopefully there's more upturn than downturn. Yeah. But thanks for thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, anytime. And, and like we said, there will be more downturns, but I've said this before and I was wrong, but it's hard to imagine a downturn worse than what this is causing right now. So <laughs> this right. might be the worst of the worst, but we continue to surprise ourselves every 10 years. <laughs> yeah, that's so true. Jim, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate it. I hope you have a good day. Yeah, vice versa. Thanks, Justin. Talk thank to you, you later. AV Nation, thank you for listening to the fourth edition of the State of the Industry. I think it's the fourth edition. <laughs> I could be wrong, but labeling it the fourth edition of the State of the Industry. Let me know what you thought. Let me know other questions you want me to ask. I'm going to get Jim back on again here in the next couple of weeks so we can do this again. So you know the drill. Send me an email, pilotthepilothq at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at pilotthepilot. Share the podcast. Share our Instagram with all of your friends so they are not missing out. But I hope everyone's having a great day. Hope they're staying safe. And as always, happy flying.